Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Again, I have the pleasure of being able to interview two different people from the project team. This time, it's representatives from the owner team and the construction team on the project we're going to talk about today. My first guest today is J.D. Desham, Senior Project Manager for Multnomah County Facilities and Property Management. J.D. has a Master's in Civil Engineering from McGill University in Montreal. He specialized in structural design and worked on hydroelectric power plants and bridges for most of his career. J.D. worked on projects around the world, I'm jealous reading this list, including Canada, Malaysia, Argentina, Dubai, and all around the United States. My second guest today is Josh Durham, owner of Gamut Project Solutions and formerly project manager at Hoffman Construction. Josh spent the past two decades as a project manager for Hoffman, building some of the biggest and most challenging commercial construction projects in the Pacific Northwest. Working in market sectors from education and government to office development and airport terminals, Josh oversaw more than $1 billion in large-scale commercial construction. Josh now works independently as a building industry consultant through the company he founded, Gamut Project Solutions, or GPS for short. GPS provides a full range of building industry solutions from small business enterprise mentoring, training, and business development to construction project management, owner representative services, and construction best practices guidance. Josh's passion has been, and still is, to use the lessons he has learned to make building easier for everyone, which is part of the reason he's here today. We share that lessons learned passion. 
The project we are going to talk about today is the Multnomah County Courthouse located in my hometown, downtown Portland, Oregon, at the west end of the Hawthorne Bridge. It is a 460,000-square-foot building that includes the historic 20,000-square-foot Jefferson Station, a former power substation remodeled to house hearing rooms. The courthouse tower was permitted as an addition to Jefferson Station. The project includes radiant heating on the court floors as well as solar panels on the roof, which in turn feeds the Hawthorne Bridge. I did not know that. The building was the first building in Portland constructed using performance-based design. This building is designed to move upwards of three inches in any direction without failure to structural or life safety components. At its height of over 340 feet, Josh believes that this is still the most dynamic movement of any building this tall in Oregon. He says that, (laughs) ah, this would make me laugh. He says that it's the only building in the state that can bend over and touch its toes. The courthouse has a very unique interior program as well, with the top 10 floors being courtrooms with slab to slab heights of around 20 feet, five feet more than a typical office building of the same height. To achieve movement capabilities that allow this building to withstand the big one, meaning a major earthquake, and maintain essential operations, a performance-based design method for the structure was chosen rather than following the IBC and OSSC, which is the Oregon Structural Specialty Code for any of those not in the know. This has several advantages, but also created several challenges from early in design all the way to building turnover. The building has no core and has giant viscous dampers installed within the courtroom wall cavities on the top 10 floors. These key design features allow the building to move the way it needs to move in a major seismic or wind event, which we get major wind events here on occasion. Literally a bend but won't break design. If you've walked by the building, you can't miss the massive round concrete columns that are both outside the building and within the three-story atrium lobby space. We call them, fondly, the Pillars of Justice. Literally years of planning went into designing and constructing these columns that are over 40 feet tall and several feet in diameter. While they are major structural elements to the building, they are also a signature architectural element. The story of how these columns came to be and how they ended up even better than imagined is a great story to share. Because a lot of our listeners are not here in Portland and don't have the ability to go walk by this building anytime they want. Some general stats about the building and design. Paint a verbal picture of this building for me. Well, it's a 17-story building, which is the equivalent of about a 23, 24-story building, right, Josh? Yep. And we have uh, the basement underneath. And because it's a courthouse, it has all those spaces that, you know, you don't get in a normal building. So we have a sally port so that you drive in and that the uh, in-custody defendants get out to go to the holding cells to wait for the court case. On the individual court floors, we have holding cells there as well. So that if there's a, a short break in the session, the uh, in-custody defendants can remain there and don't have to come all the way down to holding. Uh, we have separate elevators that bring the in-custody defendants up to the court floor so they're secure we have public elevators. We have a judge's elevator for the judges to come up to the court floors. Because it's a courthouse, you know, you could come in to pay your parking tickets. Uh, you might be called on jury duty. 
Uh, we have the district attorney in the building. We also have something which is unusual, which is we also have the defense bar in the building as well. So you have the district attorney and the defense in the same building. And we have space for the, the judges and their staff and sort of the full thing. People always ask me, what are your favorite places? And there are three places that I kind of focused on. One is we have court care. So it's on the ground floor of the building. And so if there's a case where family had to come in with a young child, they could bring in, have the child wait there, play area, uh, and then you know the parents could go or mother or father could just ca- take care of whatever judicial business they have there. Uh, we also have a victim's lounge, and it's oriented towards the river. We put a lot of that space in. And the last one is because of requirements by the state, we had to offer the Commission for the Blind uh, an opportunity to run a cafe in the building. And originally, they wanted to be in the lobby. And the sheriff says, I don't want them in the lobby. I don't want a, ca- a long line of people waiting for coffee, you know, right in front of us, people clearing security. So I said, I got a better place for you. I'm putting you right outside the jury assembly area. Originally, they're like, I don't like it. Well, I went and talked to the guy that's running it a couple of weeks. He goes, oh, it's perfect. You're waiting there. You're in, you know, jury assembly. Well, you can go get your coffee. You can still hear your name called. And he gets that nice constant flow and turnover people. We have about 240 people a day that get called for jury duty. The only other thing to note about the way the building is set up The court floors are designed as public area that include the courtrooms, secure area for the holding cells, and then private area, which is the judges' chambers and jury uh, deliberation rooms. So it is very much a a secure building, but it flows quite well. Anybody who knows me knows that I would run coffee through an IV if I could get away with it. (laughs) And I have also been stuck in jury duty. And when you said you put it at, you know, by the jury waiting area, I'm like, yes, yes, just that alone. Because now I, I I now live in Multnomah County, ah. and if I get called for jury duty again, I'm going to be far more willing to go, knowing I can get my coffee. <laughs> if I get stuck down there, I haven't been called lately, and I shouldn't even say this on the podcast because I'm going to jinx myself. And I have it's not that I've spent a ton of time in courthouses in my life, but the child care so that people can go to court. I mean, that just seems so invaluable. That That's unique, isn't it? I don't recall ever seeing anything remotely like that in a courthouse. Court care is funded by the Multnomah Bar Associations. They can handle, I think it's about 10 or 12 children, I think below a certain age. Unfortunately, it's the case of sometimes where one of the parents has to go get a restraining order or something like that. But it just provides that safety for the child and the opportunity for parents to have a conversation, a hard conversation with a, a lawyer, a judge, the DA, whoever it may be, and the child can be safe in there. And so the county has it at both the East County Courthouse and the downtown courthouse. Most of my courthouse experiences have been due to having a lead foot and having to try, <laughs> try and get out of a speeding ticket. But I can imagine that, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of cases that come through in, in stressed out parents and especially things like domestic violence or those kinds of cases, that would be such a huge benefit to, you know, be able to set your child aside for a minute in a safe place while you deal with something that's already stressful. I can't even imagine some of these people, you know, you know, a toddler and trying to make decisions about their future that 
you know, could be life-changing. Um, so I, I just think that's really super cool. Having been a single parent back in the day for a number of years, that just, that really stands out for me. You know, it's a warm space too. It's not just like a kind of a sterile room or anything, right? Like you walk into it and it, you know, it feels like a, you know, a warm daycare, you know, as a dad with two young kids, like when, as we were building and I was seeing it come together and the furnishing is going in, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is way better than what I imagined. And we, we actually took my five-year-old daughter on a little tour of the building about a year ago, JD was there and we took her into that room and she didn't want to leave, you know, and she still talks about it to this day. Like, daddy, can we go back to the courthouse playroom? <laughs> uh, I, I, so, I think that's awesome because that's going to be calming. And there's not a whole lot of reasons anybody goes to a courthouse that aren't probably going to be at some level of stressful. Right. Uh, so let's talk about the history and the goals and aspirations for this project what this building was and what you were trying to achieve and what the goal was. The old courthouse is more than 100 years old. And when it got built, it got built from where the courthouse before that was built. When we cited it, it was the first time in 140 years that the county had cited a courthouse in downtown Portland. So it was kind of like, this is a, a big deal. The county started studying replacing the courthouse back in the 60s. And one of the funny things is we had an open house, and I guess there was a model built at one point. And the a law librarian came up to me and said, where's the model that they had from the 60s? And I'm like, I have no idea. And she looks at me and goes, will this be done before I die? And I go, absolutely. The key thing that changed was when the state passed Senate Bill uh, 1601, I think. There was money put into a 50-50 split between the state and the county. That's kind of when the project began to get real for the county, and we were able to become a partner with the state. Our goals was safety, security, uh, sustainability, because we're the county, you know, participation of uh, MWSB firms, uh, minority firms, uh, then also getting a lot of people from the trades. So we had goals around uh, journey and workers for uh, uh, female participation and also for uh, minority male participation. So we had a lot of goals and our goals are all of them. You can't pick one. We have to hit them all and just have to kind of keep on going. Let's talk about some of the design challenges. Okay, you just talked about a couple of layers of really old building to meet the goals that you wanted to meet and still keep the history of this building, what were some of the design challenges you faced? Because we had historic Jefferson Station on the corner that we had to incorporate into the tower, it limited what we could do because normally if it was demolished, you had a lot more room. You could just kind of put your entrance and exits there. Well, when we only had one possible location for the entrance, which is the corner of First and Madison, we only had one possible location for the Sallyport, which was NATO and Jefferson. And that kind of blocked our two corners in. That meant that everything else had to kind of, from a design point of view, work around that. You know, we did have the challenges of, from a structural point of view, one of those things I wish would have not done. We went from, what, octagonal columns to square column back to an octagonal column. And that was a, whose idea was that? <laughs> I don't think anybody really caught it until we were building it. And then the site super 
and a few more choice words said whose idea was that. Yep. <laughs> I'll never forget that. One of the biggest ones that JD kind of already touched on it actually is the trauma-informed design. You know, it was put pretty, you know, plainly to me early on when we started in the pre-construction phase that many people, you know, this is going to be one of the worst days of their lives when they, you know, or challenging days of their lives when they enter into the courthouse. And so having a trauma-informed design, you know, in everything that we did in the building was a huge deal, not only for, you know, the the victims, of course, for the victims, but also for witnesses um, and also for the in-custody defendants. You know, these are all, these are people too. Um, and so, you know, having both the secure sides of the building designed around trauma-informed design and and the public spaces are a big deal. And, you know, one of the things that I'll um, always be so proud of, you know, for the building is that, you know, the county made a very conscious choice to give the public the river views and the mountain views. So, you know, if you ever get a chance to walk in that building, you know, on all the upper floors from, um, you know, the eighth floor up, there's this huge corridor that's, you know, it's 200 feet long, basically, it's the whole east side of the site. Um, and you get, you know, this wide open corridor, literally the most panoramic view I think there is of the river um, from a building up, up high in Portland. So it's just an incredible view uh, that puts your mind at ease, you know, when you're when you're waiting to go into the courtroom. Having to have that kind of mindset that the design team did with trauma-informed design and spreading that throughout all the spaces was uh, was a challenge for sure, but also, you know, I think it made the building um, even better than it would have been if we didn't have that kind of requirement. Very early on, once we had the design team and construction team selected, um, the county does equity lens training. And so I brought in our equity lens trainers to this presentation to the team because you can't look at it just in the, well, if it was a lawyer, it's you have to look at it from all the users and they all are going to be experiencing the building differently. And so making sure that you think about it. And, you know, I had this kind of comment of like, well, why the construction team? They have eyes on the project too. They're going to see things that the designer doesn't see. And I want to make sure that while we're building it, if there's something not working, they can come back and saying, I don't think this is satisfying our equity lens goal or the other things, the trauma-informed things that we talked about. If it's wrong, it's wrong. I'm not going to lock in. Let's just figure out what we need to do to fix it and do that. You know, even even with a, you know, over 40-foot tall, you know, space, it just feels inviting and, and warm and the opposite of a courthouse. It feels so comfortable and you can you can walk in and from, you know, the moment you walk in, you can see all the way out to the east side where the river is. Very intentional, um, you know, decisions by, you know, by the team to make it an inviting and as least trauma-inducing as possible. Rabbit hole number one. Um, <laughs> what drove the, the 20-foot slab to slab same driving principle. The courtrooms need to be taller spaces. You know, if you have a really squatty courtroom space, that's going to feel kind of oppressive and uncomfortable. And so, you know, we needed to push the ceilings up to have a more open um, space, but we still had mechanical, electrical, plumbing equipment and a structure above the ceilings, right? So the only place to go is up with your floors to allow for those tall courtroom spaces. And the thing is what drove that is that when you're the uh, judge's bench is two steps up, and then you have the witness box one step up and the jury box one step up. Because in the old courthouse, there were some two-story courtrooms and then there were some office space courtrooms and they were very claustrophobic. And so 
standard design is that it just needs to have that height so that people can feel that there's a little bit of room and there's a little bit of air. The other thing in the courtroom uh, is that we have a sloping ceiling that comes in from the outside all the way in. And so there's already an, an interesting kind of visual break. The sloping ceiling is over the gallery, and then you get the flat area where the, uh, the lawyers are sitting. And so it, it was very much intentional to try to make the spaces feel open. The other thing that we added based on request of one of the judges, maybe not request, but she brought it up in multiple meetings, was I hate being on the bench and not knowing what the time of day is. I'd like to see some natural light. So we put clear story up at the top so that there's natural light that comes into the courtroom. Seeing a little natural light during the day kind of makes it a little bit easier. We've all worked in an office where you're really far away from the sunlight and you're like, oh, I wish I had that cube over there. Designer construction, what was the most complex piece of this building to make happen? You know, I think we should talk about the, the pillars of justice. It was one of the first things we started talking about were these concrete columns. And we spent really the first three or four months of the early phases of pre-construction, you know, obviously, you know, starting to put the program together and um, the design team doing tons of interviews with the diff- different user groups. But we also spent a lot of time as a, as a core team talking about these columns in the main lobby. From, you know, the color of the concrete to what the mix design was to how big they were to whether they needed to be um, square or round like J.D. talked about. And then actually, you know, at one point we decided to ask the structural engineer what they thought, too, which was a good idea. (laughs) You think Um, in Oregon sitting on a fault line? (laughs) Yeah. So we just we spent a ton of time uh, early on talking about these and. You know, it wasn't all Hoffman, you know, myself primarily included. It wasn't all us just saying, yeah, you bet we can, you know, we can do it. We we did push back. I'll give a lot of credit to Steve Simpson, who's the, you know, principal design architect with SRG at the time who dreamed up these columns um, that he really pushed us, you know, the contractor to believe what we could build. And we had special meetings with JD and, and Steve and I and a couple other core people where it was kind of Josh versus Steve on, you know, I was, I was trying to, you know, scale these things back a little bit and Steve kept pushing the envelope. Um, and, and I'm so glad he did. Um, and it was kind of funny, like he didn't, you know, he wouldn't give you all of his vision at once. He kind of, and he knew he couldn't because I would have just thrown up my hands. Right. So he kind of peeled back the layers through, you know, a variety of meetings um, to kind of get us to where we are now with these columns. Um, but once we once we had his vision of these columns and we had, you know, the structural engineer or KPFF involved um, and we figured out that they needed to be composite columns, they look like big concrete columns, which they are, but inside of them is also a huge steel white flange uh, column uh, with rebar draped around that. So it's a composite super column. It's not just a super column, it's a composite column. You know, once we had that vision, then we got, you know, the, the real, the folks who had to build it, physically build it, we got them involved as well. And, you know, we had Larry, who uh, was an old time concrete superintendent for uh, Hoffman Structures, the, the concrete division of Hoffman. We got him in, involved. And that was really, you know, this was already kind of his swan song project. Um, and the, the columns themselves are kind of his last you know, give to the construction industry. He His retired. Last hurrah. <laughs> yeah, he retired after. Um, you know, I actually retired during this project, uh, but he was the one that figured out how to you know, literally form these up 
um, you know, what kind of cedar. We use real rough sawn cedar to form the inside of them to give them that that wood finish. So it's not a it's not a plastic finish. It's a real rough sawn cedar um, finish on on these columns. You know, he spent months planning. You know, how we pour these things without this huge cold joint in them because you know a forty foot tall column is hard to pour with in just one continuous pour, especially when it's you know they're four feet in diameter. So. First of all, we couldn't pour them all the way from the top because if you did, the, the forms would explode. Like we couldn't hold the forms together with that much head pressure. So we actually had to gate valve the first 20 feet of these columns. So, you know, there's a, actually a little valve at the bottom of the concrete columns and you, you pressure pump the first 20 feet of them. And then in the same day, so that there's not a cold joint, we had to come back and pour, you know, the last 20 feet from the top. Um, all with the goal of, you know, having this one monolithic looking column at the end of the day. And I tell you, you know, some of the best trained eyes can go out there and you can't see the cold joints in these columns, which is really, you know, I think an incredible accomplishment. And the other thing, the other thing I'll say about them is not every architect would agree with us, but they, you know, thank goodness for SRG, they agreed that less is more with these columns. So when we stripped them off, the less we touched the concrete, the better, you know, these things were going to look. And everyone got on board with that to you know, leave them, you know, as they were, you know, we knocked down the, the big chunks of concrete if there were any on any of them, but we let them be, you know, how they were built. And once the columns were done and stripped and the general craft could see these things, everyone took pride. People that were part of the project that had nothing to do with these columns, everyone took pride in these columns and uh, knew that something special had been built there. Tell me about some of the products and materials and systems you, you used on this building. The courtrooms are one of the uh, more interesting areas. So we had our acoustic consultant and we had to make sure that, you know, the sound was neither too dead or too lively. And so we have acoustic sheetrock. And so it has these little, well, not perforations, but it has little squares in it. And so that helped for the acoustics on the back. And then on the side, we had wood paneling with acoustic material between it and done many a tour in the courtroom. And I'm there with people and I'm like, stand anywhere. There is no echo and there's no dead. The sound is just very clean. We do have ballistic glass. We do have ballistic sheetrock. And there was a few areas on the building. But what was interesting is that we had some extra pieces and the sheriff said, can we borrow it and take it to the range? And they took it to their range and they uh, went to town and it held up very well. And they felt very comfortable to be in the building with these materials. And the other thing, I'll, just real quick, I'll comment on the courtrooms is we have low flow air supply into all the courtrooms. So you, can, you can't even hear the air coming in. It's all, it comes from overhead and then drops down each side. There's a return on one side and a supply on the other and airflow in courtrooms has been an issue in you know past courthouses as well, distorting you know people's testimonies and stuff. So um, we even took you know that step as well, you know from a sound fidelity standpoint. And you know, you can't even hear air moving in the space. So pretty incredible. Um, the, the other two products that kind of work in concert with the the whole building movement. You know the building being able to bend over and touch its toes. I would be remiss if I didn't mention M Seal. MCO itself is not a terribly unique product, right? And MCO has a, a, a bunch of different products. But what was interesting in the courthouse was just the quantity of MCO we had to use on the lower floors 
On the lower floors, there's no viscous damper, so the, the building is fairly rigid, but it still must be allowed to move. So on the first floor, it's um, in the secure areas, it's all um, you know CMU, full-height CMU walls, right, um, next to con big concrete columns. But even the CMU needed to be allowed to move um, up against the columns. So it became apparent as we were, you know, in early phases of construction, putting up the CMU, you know, we had these large, you know, I, cl I think close to two inch gaps between these large columns and our CMU walls. Uh, and they were all fire rated on top of that too, right? <laughs> so, and secured, had to be secure. You couldn't, you know, had to have pick proof gaps. So MSEAL was the ultimate solution that got used to create a fire seal, but also allow for building movement in a building that had to move so much. And then we had to put a cover piece over top of them to um, you know, make the joints pick-proof, right? Um, but the other kind of unique product that uh, you know, I had heard of, I, I'd seen in one other building in Portland, but never uh, interacted with myself, were, were these viscous dampers. For those that have never seen one, you know, they look like brace frames, for lack of a better term really large uh, uh, brace frames. They are, you know, from floor to ceiling um, uh, structures. And um, from the eighth floor up, uh, we have these viscous dampers buried inside the, the walls that surround the courtrooms, which are in the, you know, what would be the core of the building. You know, they're exactly what they sound like. You know, the, the viscous means, you know, there's this, there's this viscous fluid inside these giant pistons that are um, installed on these brace frame structures that are shock absorbers. You know, they, they, and what they do is they dampen the impact of a large wind event or, you know, the Cascadian, you know, earthquake, you know, seismic event, and they absorb the shock of those kinds of events. Um, and they allow the building to move. For some times, it was a little unnerving for folks to be able to feel the building move before we had a full diaphragm in place, right? You know, but and it took us and you know confirming with KPFF multiple times, you know, and reassuring everyone, no, like the building is supposed to do this. Okay, this is how it is designed to work, and those viscous dampers really allow the building to be, you know, what it is, and you know, have that flexibility, the bend but don't break design. Did this building have any sustainability goals? So the county had the goal that the building be uh, lead gold. And we uh, worked to try to get to lead platinum, but we couldn't quite get there. So we have on the roof, we have the solar panels. And you only have to go uh, one building over to the Edith Green building, who they have solar panels on the roof. But because of where they are on the grid with PGE, they can't backfeed onto the grid. But where we were, we were able to put the power to the Hawthorne Bridge, and on a different loop, it was able to backfeed onto the grid. And so we like to say we have the only net zero bridge. Because the county owns both the courthouse and the bridge, and we literally were right there. We were able to just feed it across. We have the radiant floors on the court floors. We have what other fun stuff did we do, Josh? Daylight control for all the lighting is pretty impressive in the building. You know, we, d we did have the building lit up uh, kind of like a beacon when we first opened it up to let everyone know we were here, right? But uh, the daylight sensoring and daylight controls um, in the building are some of the best I've ever seen. Really incredible. You also have operable windows, which are very unusual. And the sheriff was like, you're not putting operable <laughs> windows in my building. And I just thought that in my head when uh, I'm thinking in a courthouse. No, we were very... Um, we put them only in the jury deliberation rooms. 
in an area of the building that there's really no public access and you can't throw anything out and you can't get anything thrown in. But we did put them in because if you're on a jury and you have to be there deliberating and it's a sunny summer day and it's a little stuffy, you can't leave. So we figured it's one amenity that we could give to the jurors, just a little bit of opportunity to get a little fresh air. And so we did put them in. But yeah, we had long conversations with the sheriff and they were not sure about it, but uh, they're fine with it now. You guys had a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this project with a lot of different needs. So I can't even imagine how difficult that was. But any big surprise that came up during construction that forced you to make a change and take a different path? So elevators, (laughs) normally elevators stop on every floor. Well, we had secure elevators that didn't stop on every floor. And while it had been designed and approved and everybody I can't remember whether it was TKE or the elevator inspector or somebody came in and going, wait a second, you can't go more than three floors without having access to the elevator shaft. Uh, oopsie. So we had to <laughs> add that in. Yeah, the blind hoistway access doors. The first time I heard that, I was like, what? I thought I've heard everything. I've never heard of blind hoistway access doors. What are you talking about? But I've also never been in a building where, yeah, where the elevator doesn't stop on every floor. So pretend that tomorrow you're going to start another courthouse. I I know, don't twitch. Um, (laughs) Just tell me either one notable or your number one lesson learned from going through this whole process that would make you maybe change the way you did something at the outset, starting a new one. Whatever your number one lesson learned. Co-location. So we co-located the design, the construction team, and the trades. And it became this, well, we've co-located. Now everyone will immediately communicate. And I remember this weird, this feedback I heard was, oh, well, it didn't work because they were on different floors. Design team was on three and and contractor was on two. And so co-location didn't work. And I realized what it really is about is having the right people and the right means to make them talk to each other. For the facade, the designer and Annie Reeves from Hoffman were always talking. Up and down flights of stairs, always meeting. I had one of the architects make a comment of going, I can't work here today because I can't get any work done because people keep asking me questions. (laughs) And there's a validity to it. And it just becomes a case of trying to find, is it office hours? What is it? And I remember I had occasionally have to literally go with people to go talk to somebody else because I would say, go talk to them. And they later, a couple hours later, do you talk to them? No. Next day, did you talk to them? No. Like, fine. I'm going with you to go talk to them. It's for whatever reason, you're not comfortable. It's not your thing. You're an introvert. Whatever it may be, it is what it is. You can't assume because you put people in the same space that they'll actually talk. Cattle prod works really well. Yeah. <laughs> What about you, Josh? Your number one lesson learned that you would take into the next courthouse you did right from the outset? JD and I have talked about this before. Um, I wish we would have taken another 12 months to plan the project, you know, which which at the time, you know, sound, would have sounded crazy, would have sounded too expensive, right? But I really wish, um, and this goes for all of our projects, I wish there was more time for the contractor and the design team to really figure out how to build the building. 
Um, and so I, on the courthouse, you know, if we were going to start it again, I would add somewhere between eight and 12 months, maybe not even tell anyone except for you know, the really who need to know people, but add eight to 12 months to the, the last phase of, you know, designing and planning for actually going into construction. Cause I think that could have saved, you know, everyone heartache and, you know, some late nights and stuff. If we just had more time and we're willing to spend, you know, more money in that phase of the project, you know, there's the old adage that people are going to take as long as you give them. Right. And so you, you need to know where to draw that line. But, uh, you know, I, I think more time in the, the design and construction planning phase would have, would have really benefited everyone involved. And I agree with you. If I was just going to do it slightly different, start earlier. Context being is that because we use CMGC, I needed to get board approval. And I didn't want to get ahead of the board by working on all of the procurement documents. In hindsight, if I could have started all of that a little bit sooner, I could have had the procurement documents, got board approval and issued the next day, chopped off a couple of months. And as a spec writer, you'll appreciate this. One of the things we kept running into was we'd be at one phase, roll into the next phase. Spec writer would get the comments, get new additions from the team, but not necessarily address the comments from the contractor. Contractor would get the next set and go when none of my comments were addressed. So having more time would have meant that those issues would have been addressed. And I think partially we ran into the contractor would make a comment, architect, spec writer would look at it and go, oh, no, we're not doing that. And then contractor wouldn't know whether it was, I disagree with it for these reasons, or I didn't get to it. And I think those all then got pushed to construction where there was a occasional disconnect between, well, the spec says, but I told you I couldn't do that. Now what? Yeah, and it's always more more expensive to solve problems during construction, always. I've been around a long time, and I'm seeing schedules for building types that I've done my whole career that are half what they used to be for time for design and planning. Mm-hmm. And I understand buildings have also gotten a lot more expensive, but you don't always save money by doing that. You sometimes end up spending twice as much when you get to construction because those are the projects I hear the, I don't have time. I'll just deal with that during construction. And that's going to be the biggest cost to the owner is to deal with it during construction as opposed to getting it worked out during design. So I totally get that. So I'm just going to ask my final question that every guest that I have gets this question. If you were master of the universe, and had complete control over everybody, and you could change one thing in our industry or in the built-in environment in general more broadly to achieve better project outcomes, what would your number one thing be? Uh, I I am a longtime listener, Sheree, so I, I do. I have cheated. I looked ahead. Um, <laughs> everyone seems to give the answer of, you know, better collaboration, you know, those those kind of you know, answers, you know, um, I wish we all had more time to work together and, you know, plan together, right? And the question you've asked, why aren't we doing it? Why isn't it working? And I I believe, I'm just one guy, but I, I believe it actually goes back to the contracts and the lawyers who write those contracts. So, you know, and I have a lot of lawyer friends and I've had these conversations with them. I think, you know, if I were master of the universe for, for one day, I would create a system that de-incentivized 
people from creating one-sided contracts and, you know, a system that de-incentivized, you know, project teams from uh, engaging legal counsel too early, you know, when they come across project issues. Um, because, you know, they set out with the best intentions, right, of we're going to collaborate, we're going to co-locate, uh, we're going to have a long pre-con, all those things. But the people in those projects also know there's this contract I have that I can I can fall back on. You know, if all else goes to fail and, you know, we can't really collaborate, we can't really work together, you know, I got the contract, you know, and I know what the contract says. And so, you know, if I need to, um, you know, go to that, you know, to solve my issues rather than, you know, solving it with the team, I can't. But, you know, if I were master of the universe for one day, that would be it was, you know, better contracts that are mutually beneficial uh, for all parties that incentivize you to actually incentivize you to collaborate and not go into your corners. Um, that would be that would be my wish. I absolutely love that answer because I have been saying that exact same thing for years. That's an awesome answer. Your turn, JD. Now you get to blow Josh out of the water. <laughs> Mine goes actually in a different direction. I made this comment early in construction going, my goal is that the prime and all the subs make money. And I got this look. I'm like, why? Well, if you make money, then you're not coming back to me for more money. So that means we're all happy. And so I'd be looking for that. But one thing we're going to run into, and we're running into it now, we ran into the project, lack of trades, lack of people in the trades. And until we get more people and more diversity in the trades, it's going to be hard because what happens, and we had turnover, we didn't have enough people for certain portions of the work. And they're like, well, there's nobody in the hall. And uh, if we had, you know, more tile setters and more on and on and on, it would have been a case where, you know, it's like, well, we could have got that done in, you know, the time we said we would, but because we were short staffed and couldn't find people, it took longer and it's not going to get better. People are retiring. Kids today look at it and go, eh, it's a tough job. I don't know if I want to do this. But that's our fault because about 20, I did schools for years, about 20, 25 years ago, we started taking all of the shops out of the schools. Yeah. Putting in computer labs and telling our children that if you don't go get a four-year degree, at least, in a university, you're less than. Mm -hmm. And now they're trying to scramble and get it back. And it's, this is not something you create overnight. No. You know, it, it doesn't. And, it, and it's a huge problem right now. And my, my gut, my prediction is we will have this huge problem for at least 20 more years. We've got two huge generations coming behind me. Um, in the millennials and Gen Z, and they're starting to get a different message. And there's, and trades are making a lot of money right now. Um, and that is sparking some interest. It's like, oh, I can make a good life for myself working in the trades. Without having $100,000 in, in student debt. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I appreciate both of you taking the time to be here and Josh, you reaching out. And number one, listening to my podcast. I just thank you for that. Yeah. So I appreciate you helping make this happen. And you guys hanging out and putting up with me today. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. 
For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.